Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, Valley of Bones, by David H. Keller, Doctor David H. Keller. Uh, this was first published in Weird Tales, January 1938. It's, um, I think, the fifth or maybe the sixth. Uh, David H. Keller story we've done for this show. And I just want to say uh, we got Maria Morovsky, we got Margaret St. Clair, we got David H. Keller. These are people I was basically unfamiliar with before we started doing podcasting uh, together. And I'm, if, if not any other characters, these guys are terrific and everybody should check them out. Uh, this is another such. I, I will note uh, for people who have not been listening to all our David H. Keller shows, he lived from 1880 to 1966. And in 1968, his papers went to Syracuse University, which uh, has basically everything he's written and makes me want to go to Syracuse University and dig around in there and find out what gems are. I've escaped me thus far because everything David H. Keller touches really has something worthy of our attention. Syracuse also has a biker bar with great barbecue sauce. Well, I know where I'm going right after I check out that library. You got it. Yeah. I won't mention the name because, you know, I don't want people to think that we have nefarious commercial interests that are warping our aesthetic judgments. Your investment but, in that biker bar is going to pay off if you if you just give that name. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> So um, do you want to say anything more about – I think one thing we should remind people of is that uh, David H. Keller um, often put the MD after his name in his byline. doesn't happen to appear in Weird Tales in this story, but whether that was his choice or the editor's choice, I don't know. But what I do know is that he prided himself on being the first actual certified psychiatrist to write for the pulps. Uh, whether that was true or not, I don't know. But that's what he claimed. And uh, knowing that he is a psychiatrist, I think, um, alerts one to different aspects of his writing. Oh, as, very as much this so. Story. Yeah, I mean, that's what he brings to the table, is a sort of a, a deep knowledge of psychology. And whether you believe that psychiatry is the best way to treat people uh, with um, mental illnesses or weirdnesses. It certainly is the best way to get a good short story with a lot of deep thinking going on in it. And that's exactly what we have here. Uh, I, I think this is a beautiful story, and I would love for you to read it to us, and then maybe we can discuss what it all means afterwards. My pleasure. Valley of Bones. You were kind to me in England, said the Zulu. I looked at him and tried to remember, but I could not drag the past out of the subconscious. Not wishing to offend him, I simply said, it is nice to know that you have some reason to remember me. He smiled. After all, you do not remember. 
We were in the same classes at Oxford. All the men there were courteous to me, but they never accepted me as their social equal. You had me into tea several afternoons. We talked about psychology. You were majoring in it, and I told you some things about my people. I remember now, I replied rather sharply. In fact, I wonder why I did not recognize you in the first place. But it was a long time ago, over 30 years. You were young then, and, and now you look young, but I know that I am nearly 60. Yet we were interested in the same thing at the time, and I saw no real reason for not accepting you as, well, as a brother. Because after all, there was something of kin between us, strange that we meet after all those silent years. Meet in Africa. Hunting? I suppose you might call it that. But you have not killed anything. I have been watching you for five days. Game all around you, and you do not kill. No, there has been enough killing. I carry a gun for protection in emergencies, but I do not kill. Except when I have to. I remember. You used to think that animals had rights and souls. You even thought that they might live on after the first death. <laughs> yes, I said laughing, but, but I never proved it. And I have not talked about that idea for a great many years. My close friends stated, my close friends started to worry about me, thought I was insane. Are, are you hunting? Yes, but I also hunt without a gun. You don't mean you use a spear, I asked curiously. At times when I need food, but on this trip I am going to use something older than a spear. In fact, I am going to be like you, simply an observer of life and death. We camped together that night. He was alone, and I had only two porters. Before supper, I suggested that we dress for the occasion. Two Oxford men, I remarked. We should not omit the conventions of polite society. I came from Idaho. You came from Africa. For the evening, let us forget our origins and remember our cultural education. Rather to my surprise, he agreed. So we dined according to the best traditions of Oxford. It was moonlight when we finished, and I asked him to share the camp with me that night. We even sat on camp chairs near the fire. He was silent. I tried to make conversation. At last, he seemed to wake from his dreams. You thought animals lived after death? Yes. Do men? Perhaps. Should you like to be sure? Delighted! I should be the first man to know it. Not the first. My ancestors have always known it. Often they sleep for years, perhaps for centuries, but when they wish to, they awake and live again till their work is done. Then they sleep again. Tradition? Folklore, I asked. Fact. Can you show me? Yes. Years ago, you gave me cups of tea, little cakes, and some hours of your time. You were kind to me. I said to myself that someday I would repay you. Will you leave your camp and porters here and come with me? Yes, we will start at once. Tonight? Yes, it is necessary. First, I will take off these clothes. For supper, I was willing to wear them. Now I am going back. Half an hour later, we left the camp and started over the veldt. Fortunately, it was moonlight, almost as light as day. For three days and nights, we walked with little talking. Every hour seemed to increase the moodiness of my companion. On the evening of the third day... 
we came to a hill. Below us was a little cup-shaped valley. This is the end, the Zulu said, and sat down on a stone. I was glad to follow him. Tough as I was, the trip had taxed my endurance. For two hours we rested. Then the moon started to shine. Now I will talk, said the dark man. I am listening, I replied, and took a deep sigh. The story starts when I was a boy of 12, he said. I was the son of the chief of a Zulu tribe. It was just a little tribe, not more than a hundred warriors, but we were rather rich. We kept our isolation, but refused to become involved in the Zulu wars with the white people. Because of this reservation, we lived on. The world did not know there was such a tribe. One day, a hunter came and found us. He said that we were friends. To show that he meant that, he said he would give us a feast. My father believed his words. All of our warriors believed him. But there was one old man who doubted. He told me to go hunting and not to come back for three days. I did as he told me, and when I returned, I found all of my people dead. Down in that valley that lies before us, they were on the rocks, dead. All of them, the warriors, the women, and the little ones. But the hunter was gone, and he had taken with him all of our wealth, the gold bracelets, the ornaments of the women, the things of gold that we had for many generations. Poison, I asked. Yes, he fed them and killed them. But the old man who warned you, he must have known something. Perhaps, but we are fatalists. No doubt he thought that it had to happen because it had to happen. I do not know. He was a very old and very wise man. I sat here on this very rock for two days, and then I left. After that, I met another hunter. He liked me. We lived together. He took me to England. He educated me. When he died, he made me his heir. But I came back to Africa. And you made no effort to find the man who had killed your people? Yes, I hunted him but not with a gun. I simply kept him under observation. I guess it must have been the Oxford influence. No, not that. But I had an idea that when the time came, my people would act. But you said that they were all dead. Yes, they were dead. I have walked among them year after year, and I could take you down there now and show you the bones. Some of the bones are still together. Some have been torn apart by animals, but the bones are there. See that little fire over there? That is the campfire of the hunter. He has come back, and perhaps my people knew it. I knew that he intended to. It is a small fire. That is because he is alone. He could not hire any native to come with him. But he wanted to come, so he came alone with a wagon and four oxen. He was after something. But you said that he took all the gold. Yes, but that is spent. He sold many of the ornaments to museums. I have seen them. I even bought some of the duplicates. Now he has learned that he left part of the riches behind him, the war axes and spears. He can sell them to the museums. Some are very old. So he decided to come back and take the last of our treasures. In a way, he must be a very brave man. Yes, but only through ignorance. He thinks that my people are dead, 
just so many bones. So he camps among them, and tomorrow he will search among those bones for things that he can sell. At least he thinks he can. Perhaps my people have other thoughts. That is why I brought you with me. Tonight I want to show you something. I want to pay you for being kind to me. Are you going to kill him? No. I am going to sit here in the moonlight with you and help you watch. It is full moon. Yes, we can see. And it is not far to his camp. So we can hear. I looked at my watch. It was only a little after nine. Tired as I was, I knew that I could not sleep. The Zulu sat motionless, his eyes shut. At ten, I touched him. Do you know what is going to happen? I asked. I know what should happen, but I am certain. You see, there are two sets of emotions tearing at each other inside me. My Oxford education tells me that the thing is impossible, and my inherited memories tell me that it has to happen. So I am going to sit here. The old man who saved my life was a very wise man. He is down there, and perhaps he knows better than you or I. Eleven o'clock came, and then finally, a quarter of twelve, the cattle are restless, said the Zulu softly. They feel something that the sleeping man cannot feel. I think that they will run away. It would be best. They have done nothing for which they should be punished. During the next five minutes, the four oxen broke. We could see them galloping across the rocks. The fire started to burn brighter, and near it, we could see the man standing. He heard his cattle and awoke, commented my friend. It is good that he is awake. There are white things moving down there, I whispered sharply. They all seem to be moving toward the fire. Yes, we see them. Now the hunter sees them. We had better flatten ourselves against the rock. He will start shooting very soon. I do not want you to be hurt. Then those white things started to run toward the fire, and we heard the sharp explosion of a magazine rifle, followed by the staccato of two automatic revolvers. After that, the gunfire ceased, and we heard the shrieks of a man, afraid and, and dying. Then came silence, and the fire was out. It is over cried the Zulu. Now you go to sleep, and in the morning we will see what happened to the hunter. I tried to sleep, but I could not. Even with my eyes shut, I could still see those white line things running toward the hunter and the fire. Morning came at last. I turned to the Zulu. He sat there, eyes open, but seemingly in a dream. I shook him by the shoulder. The day has come, I said. I know it, he replied. Shall we go down into the valley? We walked down to the bottom of the cup toward the camp of the hunter. While still a hundred yards away, I saw a little hill of bones. When we came nearer, we saw that the camp, the wagon, and the dead fire were covered with bones. And with the bones, there were spears and battle axes sticking here and there among the long and rounded and whitened ivory. The Zulu turned to me and said, You are a white man, and the hunter was a white man. The traditions of your race should be remembered. Will you bury him? You will find him at the bottom of the bones. His skull is crushed with battle axes. His body is pierced with a hundred lances. His heart there, in his heart there is a dagger, and the handle is still 
held by the white hand of my father. Will you go and throw the bones to this side and that and bury your white man? How do you know? I asked almost hysterically. I was there last night. I saw the hunter killed by my family, by my tribe. I sat by you while the killing was on, but my spirit was with my own people. It seems that I remember seeing my father bury his dagger. The hunter has dug his own grave, and your people have raised a monument above him, I cried. Go back to the world and tell them what you saw. Never. I saw it happen, and you saw it happen, and we know, but the world would never believe. Oxford, after all, is very ignorant, replied the Zulu. I don't think it's just a little jokey story there. I think there's something else <laughs> going on here. I, uh, it just so happened um, in you reading it, it struck me that I was looking at a book yesterday um, from 1924 called The River of Seven Stars uh, by Arthur O. Friel. And uh, it's, a, it's a book that explores um, the explorations of uh, mostly Central and South America. And it's illustrated. It's got a lot of native peoples in it. Um, and it's a very interesting book. I'm very interested in it. But what struck me uh, in one of the, at one point, it just popped into my head um, the dedication um, to this book, which reads To the lost legion of white men who, seeking truth, have perished in every wilderness of the world. And I thought that that was almost like a coda to this story. Um, the colors here are amazing. Um, the white of the hands, the white of the man, the black of the, or the dark of the man and the dark of the night and the three days of travel away and the three days travel too. But, uh, it's the cup. And, and in reading this story, I didn't know the first time where it was going, but I had the feeling that our two friends here, one of them was going to get revenge on the other. And it's quite the opposite. It's quite the opposite. They, their relationship is that of brothers, not of enemies. And uh, that makes this story very strange and very interesting for a 1938 uh, story in Weird Tales. There was a lot of racism in Weird Tales because it was a racist time. But apparently uh, Keller was no racist. It's quite the opposite. So I've got it. Yeah, I I think I think what you're saying is right. I I find something else going on here, though. Mm -hmm. I think that um, you know John Clute in his Encyclopedia of Science Fiction has said that that Keller is marvelous for his ideas, but clearly not doesn't pay much attention at all to his writing. Uh, I think this story is. A clear exception to that observation, even if you think the observation is largely true. To me, this is a story about the human spirit, mm -hmm. about the persistent impact of the subconscious. I think that there is too much going on at the beginning 
for us to ignore. I looked at him and tried to remember, but I could not drag the past out of the subconscious. Mm -hmm. Later, when he's reminded of it, he said, I remember now. In fact, I wonder why I did not recognize you in the first place. Indeed, if, if I had gone to Oxford as a white American from Idaho, mm -hmm. if I had gone to Oxford and, and graduated, since it's 30 years later in 1938, graduated around 1908, I can't help but think that there were maybe at most two blacks on campus at Probably, all right and if one of them was also a psychology student as i was and if i had him in for tea many times to not remember him at all to remember him so little that through this whole story i just refer to him as the zulu i can't even remember his name this was clearly a unique experience in the life of the narrator and so David H. Keller, M.D., first psychiatrist to write for the Pulps, when he has his character say, I wonder why I did not recognize you in the first place, he's inviting us to say, because you repressed it, mm. because you are conforming to society. You see things, you think things, and people tell you you're insane, so you bury them. Mm. You try to get rid of them. When... When the Zulu decides that he's going to take off his Oxford clothing, he doesn't say, I am going to dress traditionally. He says, I am going back. Hmm. There is a time dimension here. There is something aboriginal in the sense of from the beginning that these Africans are in touch with. The very old, very wise man doesn't mind dying at the hand of the hunter because he knows that the cycle will go on and the hunter will die at the hand of the tribe. There is a, a story here about race, but it's a story that suggests there's something deeper than race, mm -hmm. that, that we, we think of people because we're taught to think of them a certain way. The Zulu knows that. There are two emotions tearing at my insides. Mm -hmm. But the older is the truer. The, the one that comes and allows us not to remember racial differences is the one that, as you said, quoting that word from the story, allows us at least for a time to think of ourselves as brothers. There are two tribes here the whites who are represented by hunters and the blacks who are represented by warriors. And yet, how does the Zulu come to know all that he knows about our world? There was a hunter who liked him, mm -hmm. adopted him, educated him. We can put aside whether or not this was some other motive on the part of the hunter, yep. exoticism or homoeroticism or what have you. Um, but we do know that the Zulu got to live in two worlds and he is giving back that opportunity mm -hmm. to the man who befriended him at Oxford. This is a story about crossing boundaries and recognizing the power of the subconscious, even more powerful 
than the explicit things that our culture makes available. I think not only wasn't Keller a racist, I don't know, but the writer of this story, uh, whom Keller made himself into for the purposes of writing it, mm-hmm. he wasn't a racist. Mm-hmm. I think it was much more than that he wasn't a racist. I think he's trying to show us that race is not the issue. Uh, indeed. It's human decency that's the issue. And if we don't feel it, it's because we've repressed it. Our normal impulse should be toward brotherhood. Uh, it, it, the writing is really good. I, I mean, there are writers like I read Clark Ashton Smith or H.P. Lovecraft, and I say, oh, it's just it's a prose poem, right? This is not that. It has poetic devices and such, but this is not that. But the image of the cup is so strong in here that he doesn't even hide it. <laughs> and we don't even notice it unless we're paying very close attention. So going back to that first page in the first big paragraph, after all, you don't remember, we were in the same classes at Oxford. All the men there were courteous to me, but they never accepted me as their social equal. You had me in to tea several afternoons. We talked about psychology. And then when they go, after they again share a meal, um, they go off to this this place that's three days away, right? And it echoes the three days of travel. He he went away from his people, um, and he's sharing something as a social equal, as a brother, with his friend. And he's it goes like this: Morning came at last. I turned to the Zulu. He sat there, eyes open, but seemingly in a dream. I shook him by the shoulder. The day has come. I said. I know it, he replied. Shall we go down into the valley? Next sentence. We walk down to the bottom of the cup. This is, right. this is uh, uh, you know, it, combined with the dredge, right, at the beginning, the dredging. This is all about, this is the, how I explain words like sub, subconscious and conscious to my students. It's like your 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 mind is an ocean. And bubbling up from beneath the, the in the deeps to the surface of the ocean where you can see it are thoughts like i need to pee it was there in the ocean the whole time but until it hits the surface you don't know that it's there or oh i'm angry it you did you were angry before that but you didn't know that and so when you dredge up ideas dredge up thoughts dredge up history or in this case Bones. He, he he's obviously been tracking this guy either uh, psychically, uh, using some you know magic of his people, or actually uh, if private detective like finding you know he knows all sorts of stuff about the murder of his people, and he knows what he's there for. How do we? How does he know this? It doesn't really matter. What's important is he's been carefully paying attention and he knows that this guy's going back there to do to dredge up the past again and to profit again from a horror that he did and in the opposite of that is the relationship that these two guys had at a university where this traumatized african guy who's alone away from everybody else is treated not just like uh courteous courteously but as a social equal by a uh, by some random guy. So you were saying, how could he not remember? Um, I think 
that experience was profound for both of them. But one of them, it was like, this was the only really human guy, really decent guy, really brotherly guy that I ever met at my experience in Oxford, other than perhaps the the uh, father figure that he had who brought him there in the first place, which is not really the subject of the story. So there's there's this like other way and this relationship about what are they in there in Africa for? Are they there for hunting? Yes, in a way, but not for killing. I I bring a spear when I, I need something to eat, but I'm not there after to kill somebody, which is what essentially we are witness to. We are witness to a ghostly revenge. It's a story of ghostly revenge, but it's not a threat to either of the characters who are in the story observing it. It's it's a very interesting... uh, It it could only really fit in Weird Tales as a magazine, but it, it also doesn't fit with the vibe of you know, sort of casual racism and stereotypes. It, it's saying that's not really important. What's really important is that people can make deep connections if they look past the surface. And and it is uh, well written. It's not an, an accident that you are able to to elucidate the story the way you're doing, Jesse. The the cups that are so important. You you gave me cups of tea. Mm-hmm little cakes and some hours of your time and i'm taking you to the cup shaped valley mm-hmm. um th- th- this is done knowingly by the author he's making connections you had me in to eat and now you're having me in to eat again mm-hmm. but what we see is that the way you eat at oxford has this surface it's got the clothes and if you want to find something truer you have to de-oxfordize you've got to take off the clothes, you've got to realize that Oxford is, after all, rather ignorant. This is a comment about a deeper, more powerful knowledge than white high culture allows. And it may be not an accident that the white man at Oxford who is able to see the possibility of brotherhood with the Zulu is a man from the American frontier not from some site of high culture like New York or Boston. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot in here. Uh, And because of that, rather than write him off, I think we should think of uh, David Keller's work as something that provides always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember... You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.